Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoterra Nerd Podcast, Episode 83. What would Yeshi do? Part 1. In which we ask ourselves, what would Yeshi do? Now, just to be clear for people who are paying extra close attention, the image associated with this episode is an image of Yeshidawa, but we're primarily going to be talking about Yeshitsogyul. So this is part one. Part two will come out sometime in the next few days. Longtime listeners, of course, know Kes Fry from episode two and several other uh, subsequent episodes. I believe this is his fourth interview on his fourth episode on the Esoterra Nerd podcast. He was a friend of my father's. He is a student of Tibetan Buddhism and Centering Prayer, an author of several books. But before we get to that interview, I thought it might be appropriate to get back to our recurring segment. In which I recite the poetry of Very Honored Frater P., In other words, I read the Book of Tokens by Paul Foster Case. The Meditation on Dalet I am the door, the passage from the world of ideas into the world of form. Expressing myself, I take form in substance. But the power which worketh in that substance is the sovereign force of mine outflowing ideas. Consider well, O Israel, the knowledge of me which thou hast in the sacred letters. For with them, even as it is written, hath the universe been created. In Aleph, I present myself as the source of life eternal, self-dedicated to bearing the heavy burden of creation. In Bet, thou seest me as the primal will, which, fixing beforehand the boundaries of the universe, maketh mine own being the dwelling place of all creatures. As it is written, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were fraught forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world. In Gimel appeareth my perfect wisdom, which uniteth all seeming contraries, and establisheth throughout creation the balance of warring forces. Now in Dalet I present myself as the portal through which life, eternal and unbounded, entereth the realm of temporal and limited creation. The great door is Binah, and Binah is Ima, the fruitful mother of all living. She is the desirable one, the precious thing, more to be sought after than rubies and fine gold. She is both father and mother, for her fruitfulness cometh from the Yod, of the supernal wisdom. She is the thought which spinneth the plan of existence, that web 
of manifestation, which entangleth the minds of fools, and giveth understanding to the wise, who know the secret of its mystery. In her is concealed the plentitude of Tetragrammaton, and hidden in that door of perplexity is the sun who is from all and among all. This is the gateway of life and form, yet through it come also death and conflict, even as it is shown in the numbering of Dalet. For Dalet Lamed Tav, being 434, is also 11, and 11 is the half or division of 22, which representeth the whole circle of creation. Therefore is the door a cause of separation, and the setting of one part against another. And for this it is written, that the Lord is a man of war. For in this saying is Dalit Lamed Tav concealed. I am the knowledge of the wise, and in me the ignorance of the foolish hath its root. From me come forth all conditions, the evil as well as the good. Without the setting of meats and bounds, there is no bringing forth, and thus there can be no creation without seeming evil. Creation hath its origin in life unlimited, yet for the sake of manifestation doth that life descend into the appearance of time and place. And that which hath neither end nor beginning appeareth to be born, and to be brought at last to death. Deluded by this appearance are those ignorant ones, in whom the light of my wisdom hath not yet dawned. From their delusion springeth a false desire, and from that false desire is generated unrighteous action. Yet nothing is performed save by my power, and I am the real actor in these deluded ones, as truly as any sage. From the fires of pain and suffering, kindled by their ignorance, in my good time, shall they come forth, cleansed from the dross of illusion, resplendent images of my golden self. My creative power is the projection of myself, and produceth the semblance of another. But know, O Israel, that besides me there is none other. I only am the knower and the actor, the one I am, whether alone and unmanifest, or appearing in the multiplicity of created things. The primal force of mine ideas dwelleth continually in absolute. Thence it floweth forth into the three lower worlds, through the door of understanding, as it is written, by understanding hath he established the heavens. I am the fruitful womb, 
whence all creatures have their birth. I am the mother of mothers, hence it is commanded, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For I, who am thy father, am thy mother also, and if thou honorest me, the giver of life, then shalt thou triumph at the last even over death. Let's get to that interview, shall we? Yeshi Dawa means wisdom moon. Oh, And uh, the tradition of Tara mm. comes from that. And according to theology or the, the story, and this was probably something that didn't happen on this planet, but the, the great Bodhisattva Chenrezig or Avalokiteshvara, mm. who has a universal consciousness and who took the, the Bodhisattva vow not to enter final enlightenment until all other sentient beings were liberated, he was overlooking the creation and saw this numberless sentient beings trapped in maya, or sansara, illusion, suffering and suffering and suffering. And he's motivated by this great love, so he was, he was crying profuse tears, and he said to himself, how am I ever going to liberate all of these sentient beings? Because it just seemed impossible, because there are so many of them, you know, billions and billions throughout the universe. Yeah. And out of one of his tears was born Tara, the female Bodhisattva, and she said, I will help you. Nice. And she took embodiment as a human being on some planet and she was in a female body and she was being told as she became a spiritual aspirant and was meditating and doing the things needed to move her consciousness towards liberation and enlightenment she was told by people there who knew about these things that you should incarnate in a male body because male bodies are superior. And she said no. And she, no, she took a vow to attain enlightenment in a female body. Mm. And so that's what she did. And her name was Yeshidawa, oh. which means wisdom moon. Padmasambhava and the king of Tibet at that time, I forget his name. Tristan Detsu. Thank you. Where they were bringing in not just Buddhism from... India, but Taoism uh, and uh, medicine, Chinese medicine from from China. They have and the bringing the system too, that Bonpo system in Tibet. The older system, that was right? The the, yeah, they, a lot of those deities came from that. Yeah. It didn't originate with Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. They were sort of grafted on the Buddhism. That was the indigenous religion. System. Was Bonpo? There's uh, in the in this one book, Lotus Born. Um, there's. 
Padmasambhava, as he's entering into Tibet, he keeps running into the Bun gods, and they're stopping him, saying, we don't want your Buddha Dharma here. And then he'd throw a Dorja and blind one of them, and, you know, and so then they'd be, they'd be uh, have a new name, like the one-eyed defender of the Dharma. Yeah, he converted know. them into Dharma protectors. Some, sometimes, uh, sometimes violently. <laughs> yeah. But some of them have rebelled mm-hmm. against that. Yeah. That's kind of an aside to right, our right. discussion of Yeshi right. Solo. Exactly. But but that was more the, the, the specific um, wanting to bring about more awareness, and then we can talk generally about wisdom and how Sophia is a woman's name in Greek, and it means wisdom, and Yeshi is a woman's name in Tibetan, and it means wisdom, and hey, isn't that interesting? And um, But then go specifically into Yeshi Tsyogo, but I think that mentioning, what was her first, what was her last name uh, when Tara became, took her vow? The name was Yeshi Dawa. Dawa. Dawa is Tibetan for moon, so that means wisdom moon. Very cool. Full moon, of course. Wow. And that's that's the the white Tara. Yeah. Okay. okay. Tara has many different manifestations. Because of being supremely enlightened, both Avalokiteshvara and Tara have a universal consciousness. And because of having a universal consciousness, they have the ability of manifesting innumerable individual expressions. So they they could manifest at the same time in different bodies in many different places. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, it's part of the idea of omnipresence, you know, the divine being everywhere. Yeah. Omnipresent. And relating it to the tree of life, I would say that they... They are beings that have evolved into the supernal triad on the great on the great tree on the macrocosmic tree. Yeah. So they would they would have the the consciousness of of bina understanding and hokma wisdom and kether the crown. So they're they're capable of manifesting an unlimited number of individual consciousnesses at the same time in the creation. Yeshi Sogol is considered a manifestation of Tara. Okay. Makes sense. An emanation of Tara. Emanation is the term that they use. It makes sense. The artistic depictions of of white Tara and and Yeshi tend to look similar in a lot of cases. Yes, in a lot of cases. Yeshi is also considered a manifestation of the Hindu goddess Saraswati, mm-hmm. who is the goddess of learning. And she was known to have an incredible memory. Incredible memory. Yeah. She was the one who wrote down the different teachings that Padmasamhava gave. Mm-hmm. That makes She recorded them, and some of these teachings, many of them actually, were hidden. Mm-hmm. Some hidden physically and some also hidden astrally or in the mind, they're called terma treasures. You've probably heard that expression before. Well, the termas were hidden because they were designed to be discovered in future centuries to help sentient beings through the dark age that we are supposedly 
in now. And people who discover the term in Tibetan are called Tertans. And there's been many famous Tertans. So they discover a particular term and that, that contains a teaching, often practices, that then could be given to help people. So they were... Pavasamhava was very prophetic. In fact, he is quoted in the 8th century as having said, when the iron bird flies and horses run on wheels, the people of Tibet will be scattered all over the earth and the Dharma will come to the land of the red man. That was an incredible prophecy. He's talking about the iron bird being the airplane, horses... Horses running on wheels or, or automobiles. Yeah. And the land of the red man, of course, is what we call America. What we call America now. So he had a lot of foresight. And he used that same He used that same foresight. He used that same foresight when he gave these terma teachings. Right. That Yeshi Sogol recorded. And the two of them together hid them. Sometimes they were hidden in, under rocks, sometimes under streams, by waterfalls, many different places physically, but also they're hidden in the mind. So some of the turdens would discover them through the practice of meditation. I had the opportunity up in Anchorage to go to a teaching that was given by this teacher, Nam Kadrimund. And it was the Yeshi Sogu empowerment mm. when he was there. And I was very impressed with him. Actually, I had a dream some years before he came there about, about him. And I didn't know it until I actually saw him in person. But one of the disciples of another uh, Tibetan teacher named Chagdu Tuku, mm. which presented a red Tara practice, uh, one of his followers, who he had trained to become a lama, a woman, was giving a red Tara practice. And I went to part of that, and it was at this particular location called the Denali Towers in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And I had a dream that I was at that same place, and this lama was coming to give a teaching, and I saw this gold aura around him before he started giving the teaching. And I was kind of recognizing, in the dream, I was recognizing that he was a highly evolved being. And in the dream, he didn't seem to, he knew that I was recognizing him, and he he didn't seem to like that I was recognizing him. And then the dream ended. Interesting. And then, maybe five years later, I went to this Deshi Sogo, Empowerment, because I, I knew the, the local Sangha mm-hmm. up there, and they said they had this you know special guest coming, who's also part of the Nyingma lineage, mm. and he was going to do a Yeshi Sogol Empowerment. Because I was already very interested in Yeshi Sogol, I was very keen to go to this. And when I was in the same room, and when he first came in, I saw that same golden aura around him before he started giving the teaching. Wow. So, 
that kind of connected it for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was a, it was an incredible teaching, and uh, after after it was over, you know, it's customary to give the Lama a gift. So I had a twenty dollar bill inside a, a white envelope, and I went up to him and I, I handed it to him and I bowed down, and he put his two hands on the two sides of my head like this, and he was just sort of giggling. And like this energy came into my head. And I was like high for the next two days. Wow. You know, I, he gave me a blessing. Mm. And I went home and I just went into meditation because this was literally taking me someplace, cool. you know. But prior to that, let me tell you how I first became interested in Yeshi Solo. Okay. I mean, from my early days in the 1960s when I... Uh, was interested in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And this was early days when I had done some experimenting with the psychedelics. Mm -hmm. In 1965, 1966, my uncle, who was a psychotherapist, uh, after my first trip, I went to visit him because I didn't know anybody I could talk to to explain what had happened on that trip. Right. I could tell you for two hours about that <laughs> trip, believe me. If you want to do a separate interview sometime about that, I'd be happy to do it. I think I think you told me a bit about it in, in one or two. Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went to see him. That's in your book. And told him my experience. Mm -hmm. it's, not in, it's not in my not book. Not in a published book, but in the book. Yeah, it's, it's in a private yeah. book that I've written, yes. Yeah, he told me that there was a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead that have been designed by some psychologists at Harvard hmm. for guiding people through psychedelic sessions. Hmm. It's called the Psychedelic Experience. It was by Timothy Leary, okay. uh, Richard Alpert, who became Ram Das hmm. later on, and Ralph Metzner. And so I was very keen to get a hold of this book, and I went to the Romans in Pasadena, which was one of the best stores I knew of at that mm -hmm. time, to ask for it, and they they were selling it under the counter. They didn't oh, wow. have it out in public, mm. but it was uh, out of stock. And so they said they would privately order it for me, and they'd come back in a couple weeks. But they did have a copy of the original Tibetan Book of the Dead by Evans Vents, on which this thing was based. Mm. So I bought a copy of that, and that became uh, my interest in Tibetan Buddhism. There was a foreword by Carl Jung in the book, and also by Lama Anagarika Govinda, who became one of my teachers. And I think there was one by Sir John Woodruff also, who was one of the early pioneers. He was an Englishman, but he lived in India, and he got involved in the Kundalini Yoga practices over there. And I found out about Padmasambhava because... Evans Vince had like a series of four books on Tibetan Buddhism. The Tibetan Book of the Dead was the first one. There was one on the life of Milarepa, who was the great yogi of Tibet. And then there was there was one dealing with Padmasambhava and the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And there was another one on certain teachings and doctrines of the gurus of Tibet. So I became interested in Padmasambhava then, in the mid-1960s. And then, a little bit later on, 
uh, I was living in San Francisco. This was in the 1970s. And a Dharma center was founded in Berkeley, California, by a teacher named Tarthong Tuku, who was a Nyingma master that came, he had escaped from Tibet, and he came to the United States, and he started this, this center there. And he started publishing Tibetan texts, and, uh, and they were translating them from Tibetan into English. One of them was called The Life and Liberation of Yeshi Sogo. And I pre-ordered that book because I, I knew that she was Padmasamava's chief disciple and consort. Another one they did that came out before that was called The Life and Liberation of Padmasamhava. It's a two-volume set. And this was like in the 1970s, and it was a very finely produced book. It was like $50 for the two volumes. And the one on Yeshi Sogo was fairly pricey, too. I got the one on Padmasamhava, but they never sent me the one on, on Yeshi. And several things happened in my life. And uh, eventually I was living at an ashram in the Rocky Mountains above Boulder for a couple of years. And uh, I was practicing some Tibetan Buddhism, a puja ritual that I learned from Lama Govinda, from a teacher, a follower of his in San Francisco. And then I lived in Boulder a couple of years, and then I moved up to to Anchorage. And I still hadn't received this book on Yeshi Sogo. Hmm. So I wrote to the Dharma Publishing, and I told them, you know, that I had pre-ordered this maybe eight years ago, and I was sure the thing must have come out by now. So they sent me a paperback edition of The Life and Liberation of Yeshi Sogo. Now, the press is called Dharma Publishing. I would highly recommend that you get a copy of that and you read it. Okay. It's a text from the Tibetan that was translated into English. And it's written kind of in a verse form. Okay. But it goes through the details of her life and uh, all the different things that happened to her. She was, she was born of a very well-to-do Tibetan family. And the king wanted to marry her. She was going to marry the king. And then Padmasamhava, you know, he showed up in Tibet. And the king became one of his disciples. And she became one of his disciples. And she didn't want to be the queen. She wanted to go full-time into practicing the Dharma. Mm. Because she was a manifestation of Tara. Wow. And her heart was burning for enlightenment. Wow. So she was kind of an uncontrolled, you know, young woman, and she was exceedingly beautiful. She had many suitors. Many men wanted her as their their wife. But she spent several years with Padmasamhava, and he initiated her into all the esoteric Vajrayana practices. She practiced for many years by herself mm -hmm. in caves. Went through many different experiences. And she attained full Buddhahood, full enlightenment. Mm. And 
in a woman's body, of course. And then, you know, she started teaching and traveling. And some of the things that happened that there, there, there were some people who had a child that had died, and she resurrected the child from death. She performed some of the same types of miracles that are attributed to Jesus, and they're they're recorded in this book. And uh, there was an incident that happened to her when she was meditating by herself in a cave. It's very famous. There were these six bandits. Now, Tibet has had bandits, outlaws, violent outlaws. And they found this beautiful yogini meditating in the cave, and they proceeded to rape her, you know, in turn. But when they, when they did that, when they had intercourse with her, because of the energy exchange with an enlightened being that they experienced, they all became her disciples. And she guided them. She didn't punish them. She was so compassionate. I mean, she saw how, how they were. She converted them to the Dharma, and they became disciples of hers. I wonder if and you protectors. could help me with something, because I, I told that story to someone. You've who, heard it, yes. I've, and I told that story to someone who had been raped. And she told me that hearing the story triggered her. And the idea of a religion where there's some prominent goddess figure who forgives men for raping her sounds to her like it was invented by chauvinistic, patriarchal asshole men, rapists, who are trying to like um, ease the conscience of their fellow male rapists. Can you help me with that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that you could certainly interpret it that way coming from the assumption that men are chauvinistic, right. <laughs> self-centered, yeah. Yeah. egotistical, yeah. and trying Typical. to... Typical. You know, sounds, to, sounds like an organized religion, you know. Like. That they're trying to justify immoral behavior. Right. But this was... Yeshi Sova was not a normal human being. Right. She was a Buddha. Right. So her perspective was nothing that we could even comprehend as human beings. Yeah. This is not intended in any way to justify the sexual abuse of another human being, yeah. particularly you know, against their will. Yeah. But she was coming from this transcendent position of enlightened compassion, yeah. and they had to face up to their negativity. Right. They had to go through the process of facing their karma. Yeah. And when they became her disciples, they were you know, begging her to to help them because the energy exchange that they had with her forced them to see what they really were. Yeah. And so it was not a pleasurable experience for them. Right. It was a hellish experience because they saw the monsters that they were. Mm. She revealed that to them. Yeah. And she revealed her compassion to them. That's not something a normal woman being raped would be right. capable of doing. And sh- nor should. I mean, if it, like, th- I mean, there's the the name of the podcast. What would Yeshi do? It's of course you know uh, uh, based on the idea. Of what would Jesus do? And yeah. Jesus was also, according to the story, an enlightened being. And he would turn the other cheek and allow himself to be crucified um, for wrongful charges just to make a point. Not and compassion, so, but that sacrificial love. So when they say, you know, to a Christian, be like Christ, what would what would Jesus do? 
if I'm saying what would Yeshi do, am I what am I saying? Like like well, um, it's have, not have to pretend that you are. It's not to pretend that you're enlightened. A Buddha when you're not. Yeah, as a Buddha when yeah. you're not. Like if you. But wanna, it's a moral. It's kind of a moral compass for, for existential choices. Right. What would the light in me have me do? Yeah. As opposed to my lower self. Yeah. Or, or my flawed human personality, you know, my self-centered ego. Yeah. Uh, what is the higher path here to take? Yeah. Yes, she is an embodiment of that. And we can receive guidance from that if we attune yeah. ourselves to it. But that's not to presume that we are equal right. to it in any way. Yeah. Because we are still limited souls, limited human beings, aspiring to grow spiritually. Yeah. But it would be self-delusional to entertain the idea that we have attained perfect enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, an example of that that I have found very helpful on the tree of life is in the idea that each of the ten spheres, the holy separate, has a small tree of life within it. And in each stage of the spiritual journey, starting with the bottom, you know, with Malkuth, or what's called the Zealotr level, you know, the first level, the soul has to climb that little tree of life yeah. to move through the lessons of Malkuth. And so when you get to the, the supernal triad, you could delude yourself and think you've completed Arrived the journey. Arrived at the actual supernal triad but, when you're still in Malkuth. Yeah. yeah, you're still, you're in the highest stage of Malkuth, the soul has to climb that tree ten times right. to get to the top. A fully enlightened Buddha has done so, yeah. but we haven't. Yeah. And I think that's that's the downfall of many teachers that are they're still in the personality astral triad. They've climbed the tree in Yesed, you know, foundation, or in Hod, splendor, or in um, Netzuk, victory, and they think they've totally arrived, right. and they become yeah. self delusional and they appoint themselves as enlightened teachers not realizing that they're still on the bottom triad they've got a long long ways to go in fact I would say as long as you are an individual consciousness you've got a long ways to go because the supernal triad become you become a universal consciousness when you move from chested mercy across the divide going through the invisible mm -hmm. sphere which uh, I like to call doth the cloud, mm. the cloud being a reference to non-conceptual contemplative meditation or prayer mm. and then into the supernal triad in, in Bina, the, the divine mother, which is the mother of all souls that sends us down the tree into incarnation in Malkuth. Mm. So, if you look at it from that perspective, it's, it's very humbling. We realize that even though we've achieved a certain measure of partial enlightenment, we still have a hell of a long ways to go. Yeah. But the temptation is to develop spiritual pride and egotism and to delude ourselves into thinking because we've reached the top of the supernal triad in one of the lower spheres in Malkuth or in the personality also triad that we're finished yeah. and we're not. Yeah. That's the downfall of many 
spiritual teachers. And if they don't have that perspective that the, the Tree of Life gives us, there isn't anything really to, to tell you otherwise. Unless you're accountable to someone that's more highly evolved that can tell you. <laughs> no, you're not there yet. <laughs> so in the sense of what would Yeshi do, I was, I was just thinking when you were talking that um, most people might look more toward the beginning of her career rather than the end. So, so the beginning of her career, she chose wisdom and knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge and working with a good teacher rather than the riches and fame of being queen of Tibet. Right. And that, that was a big choice she made. That makes, makes me think of the story of how Buddha, the Siddhartha Gautama's father was told, your son is either going to be this great king or this great spiritual leader. And he said, well, make sure it's the great king. You know, and he did everything right. he could to, to give him all the wealth and, and ended up creating the situation where Buddha you know, ended up waking up one day and realizing that it was all a sham. Yeah, he was either going to be a chakra of Arden, which means a world ruler, mm. or he would become a Buddha, and his father tried to shelter him within the walls of a palace from all suffering. And then right. one day, Even the knowledge of his mother. Died. One day he was he was taken out. He wanted to see what was beyond the walls. I'm sure this is all very metaphorical, but he saw the four passing sights. He saw someone that was old and uh, feeble. He saw someone that was sick. He saw people that were suffering in pain and misery. And he saw a funeral. And he asked the chariot driver, what are all these things? And then he realized that human life is impermanent. And so no matter what you've got as a human being, you're going to lose it eventually. Yeah. And then it, he made the vow to find a solution to that suffering. And yes, she knew that in, inherently when she made that choice. Yeah, she turned down material wealth and fame and power yeah. to pursue the spiritual journey. So and rather than someone saying, what would Yeshi do, and then looking to Yeshi the Enlightened later on in life, maybe it would be more like looking at the beginning. The and whole then, journey. And for the beginning, you know, just avoid bandits in caves, Jesus. You know, I mean, like carry a sword, you know, or, or something, you know, like, I mean... As far as that particular story, because that's a very sensitive story that, you know, I, I've talked well, to Yeah, I was shocked when I read it. Yeah. But it's it's in there, and it, it's showing her compassion, but also... You it know, culturally is, doesn't necessarily jive real well with our assumptions now, you know. Yeah, well, this is feudal Tibet, yeah. and somewhere in the 8th century or yeah. 9th century or something. Yeah. So we're not saying what would, what would, you know, Jesus would get himself crucified. We're not saying get yourself crucified. What would Yeshi do? We're not saying get yourself in that situation either. Oh, no, it's not a path of masochism. Right. But that's just an example of the magnanimity right. of her perspective. She was so detached from what we are still attached to. It's very much a similar story of being crucified. He was mm -hmm. he was raped, you know, as best I mean as much as much as a man can be by being crucified and being hung there to dry, you know, like and before that he was scourged, he was right. beaten, he was and he, upon. he had compassion for the ones who did it to him. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Right. So WWYD might actually be very similar to WWJD even though it sounds like it's uh it's it's making fun of it, or it's or it's saying, oh yeah, well let, not that, let's do this instead. But really, it's the same thing, except instead of a man, it's a woman, and instead of you know Judaism, it's it's Buddhism and Hinduism. And, and you need to 
to read the story of that particular incident right. in the overall context of her whole life, right. not just look at it as an isolated incident, yeah, because you don't see the bigger picture yeah. of what she was doing and why she was doing it. Yeah. And if you just you isolate that incident and then you bring yes. it into our consciousness in the 21st century, it seems nuts. Yeah. Exactly. Why would she allow that? Right. You know, but she was not a normal human being at that point. Yeah. She had practiced all these different sadness. Yeah. There's some incredible quotes from her in this uh, biography of her. Mm. Uh, she supposedly lived for 200 years. <laughs> Something though that Nam Kadrima said, because he was asked about that, was that they may have been counting like each of our years as two years. Mm. But Padma Samhava, you know, he... He went off into the sunset, and she stuck around for a long time, yeah. converting people. And they didn't want her to go, and that's all recorded in this book. And she gives like her parting teachings and things. It's really beautiful. One of the lines that I was really struck, that she was telling people, she said, draw humility and reverence from your very bones. Powerful line. Yeah. But she really emphasizes the importance of doing the practice. You know, the, the term uh, in Sanskrit for meditation is, what is it? Uh, Dayani. Dayani. Dayana. And the translation into English means doing the wisdom. So Dayana is the Sanskrit word for what Yeshi is the Tibetan word for. Doing the wisdom. That means practicing the meditation. There's no substitute for that. Mm. There is no substitute for that. That came into uh, Japanese as the word Zen. <laughs> you have to do the practice. Yeah. And that will take you through your mind, through whatever your particular karma is, through the dark side of your personality and the light side. You know, as you were talking earlier about that metaphor of the churning of the yeah, like it sounds thing. like... Oh, right, 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 yeah, yeah. You know, that's more from the what we call the Hindu tradition, but really Buddhism was a reformation of Hinduism, the right. same way that Christianity was a reformation of Judaism. Right. So yeah. they're intimately connected. And the Buddha, Sakyamuni, he lived in the cultural context of what we would call the Hindu world. That's not what they call themselves. Right. That's the name the Western... The British called them that. ...gave them... But that was the context that he was in. Mm. And of course, the, the pattern of rebirth, the cycle of taking many incarnations was an essential part of that tradition. Yeah. Just as it was in the time of Jesus in the, in the Near East. Mm. People remembered their, their past lives. <clears throat> it wasn't an issue. Yeah. So the other thing I could tell you, uh, besides Get this book and read it. <laughs> and there's another one that's a companion to the Lotus Born book. It's called The Lady of the Lotus Born. Oh, cool. Published by Shambhala, who published uh, The Lotus Born, which is a very good and readable biography of Padmasamhala. Yeah, I love that book. <clears throat> Get The Lady of the Lotus Born. That's the life of Yeshi Solo. Okay. It's a companion volume to the one you've already read on Padma Samhala. For me, I was living alone in Anchorage, and uh, 
a relationship I hadn't been involved in. I went up there to be with a woman, see. <laughs> and I was involved in this relationship <clears throat> with her. We lived together, you know, for a couple of years, and then she felt she needed to move on. Mm. Basically because I was getting more and more into the meditation, and she wasn't. Yeah. Uh, being too spiritual, you know, for some women. Right. And so, anyway, I was very, you know, heartbroken when the thing ended. Yeah. Because she had in, given me indications in Boulder when I first knew her that she would be interested in this. <clears throat> but that's another, you know, story, yes, as they all are. <laughs> so I was going through a healing process. When I read, and they sent me, The Life and Liberation of Yeshi Sogo. Mm. So I was alone, and I was vulnerable, and I, I was reading this book, and it really spoke to me deeply. And one of the things that basically that Yeshi Sogol says in the book is that if you practice the Vajra Guru mantra, we, meaning her and Padmasambhava, will come to you spiritually and guide you. If you practice it with a sincere heart, <clears throat> so, and the mantra is given in the book, I, Oma Hung Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Hung, is the mantra, and you you kind of do like a circle, you know, on your different chakras, Om, Ah Hung Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Hung. You get the picture. I'm, yeah. I'm showing you visually, so it's not <laughs> Om gonna, Third Eye. Uh, no, Om Crown Chakra. In Tibetan Buddhism, the third eye and the crown chakra are combined into one. Okay. And then Ah is the throat chakra. Hum is the heart chakra. Vajra is the chakra of, I guess, the solar plexus. Guru, sacral chakra. And then Padma is coming back up to the heart. Siddhi is the throat. Hum. Oma Hum Vajra Padma Siddhi Hum. So I started doing that mantra a lot. (laughs) Believing this. And continued, you know, reading the book. And let's see, that was, what year was that? That was maybe 1986, 85, 86, 87, and I continued doing that. Then uh, some years later, I'm skipping some stuff, of (laughs) course, but some years later, I had gotten involved with Centering Prayer, and I was at this monastery in the Rocky Mountains near Aspen, Colorado, called the St. Benedict's Monastery, near Snowmass. It's right next to where John Denver had his uh, property, where they were doing a lot of things Mm -hmm. related to ecology and the environment and solar energy and stuff like that. And I'd been going there annually to do a private retreat for a few years. And uh, I was in my room, this was like the fifth year I'd gone there, doing my meditation. And also there was a Zen, there was a Zen master and his wife that were there, that were friends with Thomas Keating. His name was Bernie Glassman. Hmm. He studied under the, the Roshi that was here in L.A., you know, the Mount Baldy mm-hmm. Zen Center? Yeah, he had, and he had been made a, a teacher. By I heard him. he was a bit naughty. 
Which one? <laughs> oh, the the Roshi of the Zen Monastery in Mount Baldy. There was one that was very uh-huh. uh, charismatic and getting into trouble for sleeping with people, and then they got rid of him. They kicked him out, and then the one that replaced him had no personality, and then people stopped showing up. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's kind of like it seems like that's the case sometimes. Well, you have you have a. I don't know which one. <laughs> Might be a different one. Maybe I don't know which ways. one. <laughs> Bernie Glassman was the disciple of, but, mm-hmm. but he had received Kensho, you know, or some level of enlightenment, and was teaching on his own. Mm-hmm. But he and his wife were there. I'm telling you that because it's going to come into my okay. story. So I'm meditating by myself, you know, in my room. Mm-hmm. I participated like in their their morning uh, lots, and they would have mass, very sacred ceremony, different than what you get in the normal Catholic Church. And they would have Vespers in the evening. It was a you know a walk, maybe up a half a mile, to get to the, where the actual monastery was. But I'm meditating, I'm in a deep meditation, and all of a sudden I had a vision. And in the vision, there is a female Buddha figure. And she has like attendants with her. And she's looking at me and she's smiling. She has this beautiful, peaceful countenance. And as I look at her, I start experiencing the memories of the life of Yeshi Sogol, of her life. I experienced being high up in a mountain somewhere. And at first I thought it was the Andes in South America. But I experienced... I started experiencing the memories of the life of Yeshi Sogo, and she was just smiling at me and beaming. And I felt a very good energy, peaceful energy come into me. And then, you know, the vision went away. And I was amazed because here I'm in, you know, in a Christian monastery, and I'm, I'm doing centering prayer, I'm doing Christian practice, but I still have my the Tibetan part of me, I'm still doing some of that too. And I wasn't sure, I, who was this, what was this? That was my question in my mind. And uh, I walked to the monastery for Vespers that evening, and Bernie Glassman and his wife, and they're dressed in their Zen priestly you know, robes, they're in there. And as I walk in there, in my mind, I'm... Mentally, I'm reciting the Om Mani Padme Hum mantra. Mm. And I walk in there, I'm reciting this mantra, and he looks over at me and he stares at me, and it's like telepathically, it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) And he realizes I'm doing a a Buddhist mantra, you know, telepathically. He picked up on what I was doing. And then he, you know, he goes like this, he makes the namaste gesture to me, and Mm. I'm feeling his vibes. (laughs) And so after the Vespers is over and everybody's walking back, and he and his wife were staying, I think, in the barn rooms because they were farther down the road than I was. I usually had stayed there. We struck up a conversation, and he says, "Well, you know, you know, what's up with you, you know?" And I said, "Well, I, I made the the Bodhisattva commitment years ago." And that's why I'm doing this mantra. Uh, of, but I was drawn for my service into centering prayer. 
because there's a big need within Christianity for spirituality, and I believe that centering prayer is an answer to that. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we hit it off really well. Mm. His wife was really friendly, and, uh, you know, during some of the services, like during the Mass, they have this thing where, you know, they say, peace be with you, and show a peace to everyone, and he would he would do the namaste, and I would just feel his his vibes. He was I was very impressed with him. Mm. He started a a uh, a bakery in in New York City for home and taught homeless people, gave them jobs and stuff wow. as part of his compassionate thing. Yeah, he did a lot of contribution. He's very active. So I wasn't really sure about this vision. I mean, it, it was real. <laughs> I was sure it happened, and it was a blessing, but I wasn't sure what to identify with who it was. So. After my time there in Colorado, I came out here to Los Angeles to visit, and my my parents were still alive at the time. And I went up to Lake Arrowhead and visited an old friend of mine, a woman that I'd been really involved with, or, you know, actually I'd been legally married to, uh, but we remained friends. You know how that that could be. I think yeah. it's a it's a wonderful thing when, when that you separate from someone you've been intimately involved with, but you can still forgive each other, whatever you need to forgive, and remain as friends yeah. to some degree. You know, and yeah. still love each other, but as friends. You know, yeah. in more of a platonic sense. So uh, this woman had a friend who was a very gifted psychic and spiritual reader who lived in Lake Arrowhead. She had worked with the Course in Miracles and had actually received an anointing from Jesus to do a particular ministry. And her ministry involves escorting people, souls that get stuck after they die and are not able to make the transition to cross over. She escorts souls over was part of her gift. Another part of her gift was to read people's past lives and tell them information about that. And to read you or me, to read a person and talk about your current relationships. As a matter of fact, after your dad passed, I went and saw her. And she got in touch with your dad's was her spirit. Name Erica? No, her name was Delane Floor. Oh, okay. Her name was Delane. She is no longer Mm -hmm. on the earth plane. She was an older woman, and she contacted your dad's spirit when I asked about this vision I'd had. Yeah. I also asked her about, you know, some of my past lives. Yeah. She gave me insight into what my identity was in my most recent past life. Very interesting, because she had information that she had no physical way of knowing, mm. that I had learned through research, and had experience through dreams and other things about this past identity. But anyway, I asked her, what was the identity of this being that I saw? Mm -hmm. And she looked, she was all gold, you know, when I saw her. And she said, well, this, this is a guide that you now have, and she's been with you for about 10 years. And it was 10 years since I'd read the life and liberation of Yeshi Sobel, the mm. book. Yeah. 
she, she said, you're very lucky to have her. And she's known as the mother of the Buddhists. Wow. The mother of Buddha. And so I knew that that's, that's one of the names of the higher manifestation of Tara as the Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. That's the Sanskrit term for it, for what Yeshidawa wisdom known is. Wow. She became known as Yeshidawa when she took human incarnation. Yeah. And then one of her incarnations on this planet was Yeshisogo. Mm. It was a primary so, incarnation. And I have had many experiences and guidances and helps from this being. But what she has done, what Yeshi does, or White Tara, she said that she has just assigned to you one of her emanations. It's not like you've got a monopoly on her. Right. She's guiding innumerable It's like the Santa beings. Claus at the mall isn't the real Santa Claus. There's no... Yeah. <laughs> They're all the real Santa Claus. Well, yeah, she's... There, there's no limit yeah. to the number of manifestations that she can put out to guide individual souls. If you form the connection with her and you're sincere, she is available. <clears throat> the Yeshi Soul of Sadhana that Nam Kadriman gave is it's very involved. You would you would have to have the empowerment, which I did receive, <clears throat> but it would take you a long time to learn it and to practice it. Of course there's all the cards. You, they won't even send you the cards unless you've received the empowerment. Mm. Now, so it's a is that when they come around here? Or it's a restrictive practice. Is that something I might be able to do when I'm in India or Nepal? Like find them and get that empowerment? He has a monastery in Nepal. Oh, good. What, what, and what was his name His again? name is Namka Drimad Rinpoche. Okay, cool. Now I can add that to my list of things to He's a very highly evolved being, but, you know, the stuff that he's... The stuff that he's teaching from what Diane has told me. I told Diane about him mm -hmm. because I was so impressed with him. And she she was more, you know, into the BOTA and that. But I just said, I, I met this teacher and I'm real impressed with him and he's going to be in the L.A. area and you might find it worthwhile to go to his teaching. He doesn't speak any English. Mm. So he has a translator. Uh, and his his group is called Ripa Ladrang. So if you wanted to know about him, you would they have a website. You would contract Ripa R I P A Ladrang L A D R A N G Ripa Ladrang. Okay. I don't think he's doing much traveling anymore. Uh, but I saw him here a couple of times, mm. and you know Diana Diana's seen him. But they're focusing more on these protector deity practices that are very long-winded. Mm. And they're not focusing so much on the deity worship, which is more practical. Mm. I, I think what they're trying to do is, is they're trying to build up a base to move some of those protector deities from Tibet to the West. Because mm. they're trying to keep their own cultural thing alive. Yeah. And they're trying to transplant it into Europe and America because, you know, the Chinese and Tibet pretty much right. wiped it out. Yeah. But 
it's not for me to judge, really, but I would think that they'd be better off if they focused on the Four Noble Truths, the foundational practices, and the basic emptiness meditation, which is the equivalent of what centering prayer is, you know, or entering into the mystery of Doth, the cloud, which is the invisible sphere that's inconceivable, non-conceptual meditation. That's the tunnel through which you transition up the tree. Yeah. And that practice engages the higher self working in the unconscious to transform it. It takes a certain amount of faith, patience, and faithfulness to the practice and sincerity to do that, to sustain a daily practice of it. Yeah. Most people want something something they can do, you know, like in Christianity and elsewhere. Right. A lot of people think, well, you're not praying, you're not meditating unless you're doing something. Mm. But with this prayer, if you do it, it does you. Mm. It's a direct journey into opening yourself to the energies of the unconscious. But you have to be prepared for what those energies are. Yeah. And some of them are going to be the, the shadow, the dark side of the personality, the part of ourself that, we're, that we've rejected and denied and we don't want to see. And so when it's experienced, sometimes people won't experience it as part of themselves. They will do a projection and they will think it's some outside demonic right. presence that is attacking them. And that's what one of the, the criticisms of centering in prayer is the claim that it's not safe. Mm. And I would say this, I've just finished a new book that's going to come out a little later this year, answering criticisms of the prayer. But if a person is in reasonably good mental health, reasonably good mental health, if they sincerely desire a deeper, more intimate relationship with the Spirit, with God, with Christ, whatever you want to call Spirit, and if you feel attracted to praying in silence, then this prayer may be appropriate for you. That makes sense. But if you don't have all three of those criteria, it won't be. Right. Yeah, you don't want to do it if you think you have to or should, if you think you're not going to be, you're not going to live forever in the afterlife unless you do it. I mean, there's all kinds of wrong ways to have a, a daily practice. Yes. But it's a very delicate thread to find self-discipline for the sake of the practice in a pure kind of way. Yeah. Well, a guide, an inner... An inner plane guide like Yeshi Sogo will help bring you through those parts of yourself that need to be healed yeah. and cleaned yeah. and purified. She knows what your needs are. Yeah. And if you work with her, she'll work with you. But the heart has to be sincere. As soon as as soon as the name Yeshi was applied, everything changed. That was when my whole life started changing and things getting churned up and upside down, left left and right. You know, yeah, now, now I'm talking about going to India and, and being alone for a long period of time. That was all 
after we invoked her name, you know, and after we dedicated the project to her. Well, she, like I said, she meditated by herself in caves for years. Yeah. And perfected these different She wants practices. to show me those places where the bales that Padmasambhava told her about, the power spots. Yeah. I remember my dad always looking for power spots in the Angeles Forest, but he thought they were here, too, that surely if they were in Tibet, they must well, be there, here. Well, you can go on a pilgrimage to the places that she and Padmasambhava meditated in caves because a lot of them are in Nepal. Mm. They're not just in Tibet. Excellent. You know, they're going to be in those other Himalayan countries. They traveled around a lot. Mm. There was another consort that Padmasambhava had who was named Mandarava. Mm. And she was uh, the daughter of the king over the kingdom of the lake that he manifested in when he was born in the oh, lotus. right, right. I remember that story. Yeah. So, both she... Was that when he was very young? Yeah, he manifested there. He, I mean, when, when she knew him. According to the mythology of it, I mean, there was, this, there was this huge lotus blossom in this lake, and he went out there to find out what it was, and there was this boy in it. That we, he grew up to be Padmasamhava. Mm. That's why they call him the Lotus Born. Supposedly, of course, the Lotus is a symbol of the the chakras. You know, so he was born out of the Lotus. So allegorically, you can interpret that as well as literally. Right. But he's born in born our consciousness, the practice, like the lamas, in a way. Out of the flowering of those, the Lotus, mm. the, the thousand petaled Lotus in particular, the crown chakra. I remember uh, he had 3,000 years of lifetimes in India that he remembered in full, vivid detail. And um, because he knew so much, people thought that he was they, he was possessed by demons or he was a demon. Mm. And they'd say, who's your guru? And he'd say, I have no guru. And so he realized at a certain point he needed to go have gurus and to go get empowerments and to go get the teachings from various people so that when people said who are your teachers he could list some teachers rather than saying oh I just have inherent I was born with knowledge from my previous life because people don't like to hear that so I, I think that for me that speaks actually to my like ego because I mean I have a little bit of that my dad raised me thinking you're not only with that sort of of my generation you're a super special snowflake but you're extra special because you're the only one in your class that knows about Tibetan Buddhist you know mantra and meditating and all and tarot and all this other stuff. So, mm. so I had this sort of ego coming into the into the um, esoteric world, and into Wicca and into Golden Dawn, where you know I was brand new, but I was walking in like, so what are you guys doing here? You know. So I had to. So, so that spoke to me hearing about the story of Padmasambhava that he he learned he had to humble himself and and have teachers. And uh, well, the information that I received was that when he first came to this planet. It was in ancient Egypt, mm. and he mastered the mysteries of ancient Egypt, in the Western mystery tradition, and then he started taking birth in India. Interesting. And in the life of Padmasambhava, the phrase is that he was like a honeybee who went to all the flowers, which were all the centers of learning, wherever there was spiritual wisdom, and he was empowered with everything that the wisdom of India had to offer before he was invited to come to Tibet. They were trying to establish Buddhism in Tibet, but the the Bon Po religion, which was a shamanic religion, and it had both black magic and white magic in it, it was so powerful 
that the Buddhist teachers who were going there, like Santa Rakshita, who went earlier, they they weren't equipped to do battle mm. with the Banpo magicians. Right. Whereas Padmasambhava is called the occult incarnation of the Buddha. He he was the warrior. Yeah. So he was able to do battle with them and to subdue them and to actually convert the entities that they were feeding into protectors of the Dharma. Mm. So it's a quite a story. Yeah. And Yeshi Sova was an integral part of that. Yeah. But she was a Tibetan. Yeah. She was a royal Tibetan and born in an upper class family. And she had the world at her feet, but once she met Guru Rinpoche, that was it. Mm. She refused to she ran away, you know. She she was disobedient. Yeah. All she wanted was enlightenment. Yeah. And he recognized her caliber and he became her guru she became his chief disciple and then she carried on his work after he left and then eventually joined him in his uh, pure land there's this whole thing about the, the different pure lands of the Buddhists like Amitabha has a pure land it's a pure land of bliss and if, if a person is a faithful follower of this path even if they haven't attained liberation yet, they can take rebirth in the Pure Land. Mm. And in the Pure Land, it's not like this world. You're surrounded by higher evolved beings, and you can complete your teaching there. Oh, wow. Once you're, you've met the karmic uh, requirements to be born there. Huh. So it's kind of a grace that you yeah. receive. And then in that Pure Land, you can be guided to liberation. And then you can become a servant. Like they were saying at the service today, we become servants of the light to facilitate the spiritual growth of those who are still not awakened to the path. Yeah. And then I made the joke that it sounded like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, the, uh, you have the, the woman who represented spirit or God, speaking, as, speaking the words of Jesus, basically, and saying... I will send you forth so that you will learn these lessons and I will compassionately allow you to go for aeons and aeons and aeons. And so after the first aeons and aeons and aeons, which they shortened, thank God. Last year it was much longer. They went around in circles. Um, and then they, they say, we're, we're suffering, we're sick, we're, we're miserable, we're, you know, we're trying to... Like, and, and so she says, okay, well, this is all done out of love. Keep going around in circles for more aeons. They're saying, please, please take this cup of bitterness away from us. Please don't, don't make us suffer. And she's like, well, you're suffering for your own good. Keep going. And so then they go around for another several aeons. And then she's like, okay, now how do you feel? And they're like, we want nothing but to, to do what you will. We want nothing but to be vessels for your light. And so yes. I leaned over and said, sounds like Stockholm yeah, Syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I heard <laughs> a little that. bit. A little bit. <laughs> I heard that. And you, well, from the, the point of view of ego, you could really right. see it that <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. or psycho psychological but, analysis minus religious devotion. Yeah. But basically what they were... What they're doing is no different than the Bodhisattva vow. Right. Yeah. It's the choice to remain within the realms of manifestation. And I think Paul Case. Out of compassion rather yeah. than out of need. So it's not like you karmically have to keep reincarnating to learn the lessons. You've learned them, but now 
out of compassion for your fellow beings, which you are part of, and they're part of you on the deeper level of the universal consciousness, you choose to remain behind in order to assist and facilitate their growth, but you're not doing it to gratify the self-centered desires of the ego for power and control or affection, esteem, security, survival, (laughs) wealth, fame, and power. Wanting to not suffer. (laughs) No, those, those, there will be inevitably some suffering for anybody that takes human incarnation. Yeah. It just comes with the territory. But once you reach a certain level of adepthood, you can help without taking human incarnation. Right. I think I feel that Paul Foster Case, uh, in a way, was intentionally bringing some of those ideas from the East into a Western context with uh, with some of these ideas and some of his poetry. And he practiced yoga and did a lot of study also. And so a lot of those guys were doing similar things, but he was he was doing it in a subtle and very divinely guided. Like I feel I get the sense from Paul Case that he did deep meditation before he wrote. A single word of those Absolutely. book of Tony's, where Crowley, on the other hand, you know, <laughs> would just write. You know, he just like whatever comes comes to mind. So he, they ended up with different schools, but they were drawing from the same source. Yeah, I love Paul Foster Case's yeah. poetry, which we heard in that service, the Easter service that we attended at the BOTA Temple today. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, if you just close your eyes and you go into meditation and you really listen deep to it. It, it reverberates inside of you on a deep level. Yeah. It speaks, speaks to you. And that's the same way the text of this book I'm recommending, The Life and Liberation of Yeshi Sogol, is. If you read it that way, slowly with a sincere heart, and realize that this is coming out of a different culture. Yeah. So you have to make some allowances, but if you can enter into the spirit of it, it will give you many blessings. Yeah if you're sincere. This book is an example of what I would call a transmission text. Mm-hmm. And actually this is the way I want my own books to be read, as a transmission text. If you read it very slowly, sincerely, with an open heart, there's a spiritual transmission that you can receive from the text. Mm-hmm. If you're open to it and you have the receptive capacity is there, if you have a certain amount of humility, faith, and openness, and you do it slowly, the transmission will come through. And the transmission is coming telepathically from the inner planes. But the, the text is simply a physical instrument to help us tune in to receive that transmission. And you may receive it post-reading in your dreams, and in your meditation. So you don't want to rush through the right. thing. You don't want to like look for it. Like where is it? Where's no, the... you don't you don't want to do that. You don't want to analyze it intellectually too much. I mean you want to get a, of course a grasp of what it's saying, but the deeper part of it will come non verbally and telepathically as a transmission text. That's really what the scriptures of you know, the Bible is. Any sacred text should be read as a transmission text. But to be capable of reading it that way, you have to make reading it into a private meditation that you're doing with the text. Not a, not a scholastic exercise right. or an analytical exercise. Frowning where you, with a pipe. <laughs> where, you're comparing it, where you're comparing it or 
judging it. Right. Don't save the judging until after you've processed. Yeah. Because we aren't in a position to judge a sacred text until we've experienced it. Right. And to experience it, we have to get the transmission, which comes from the inner planes telepathically, non-verbally, through our intuition. And reading the Life and Liberation of Yeshe Sogol is a way of tuning into that spiritual guide. She's real. She's a presence. And when you read that text, she knows you're reading it. And if you're open, you know, I was just blessed to receive that. And it wasn't until ten years later after I'd read it that she manifested. And then I didn't get the confirmation of it until I talked to Delane a couple a month or so after I had the vision. And she was able to be in communication with her. And on subsequent readings, she would tell me, like, well, do you ever feel all these chills on your right arm? She said, she's right next to you. She's pouring love into you. One time I was meditating, and I was up there in Lake Arrowhead at this friend's house, and I just had this great experience of love come into me through the crown chakra and came down through the different chakras. It's just a beautiful experience. And I talked to Delaine and she said, she's like giving you like a hypodermic needle shot of love. Hmm. <laughs> that reminds me of one of the descriptions in Lotus Born where they, they made this elixir uh, of immortality or something. And when you drink it, there were a bunch of rice-sized glowing golden dorges that flow through your whole body and all through your veins. So that's that's a, like a, a metaphor for this type of... yeah. A non-verbal, non-physical experience yeah. of the blessings and the grace. And what happens is that that energy starts to bring about purification, healing, and transformation in the soul. So it's, it's food for the soul. It's what it is. It's nourishment. And it's the same thing that's, that's meant by initiation. Or abekshka, as they they call it in the Eastern tradition, where there's a transmission from the consciousness of the Guru to the disciple. Once the disciple has been prepared to receive it, it's a transmission of the Guru's consciousness direct to the disciple. It's a telepathic thing, and the disciple experiences whatever the Guru can give them, and that moves them to a higher level. That's what Lama Govinda experienced. He writes about that in his autobiography, The Way of the White Clouds. That's not an easy book to find, but it is available. It is out there nowadays. Okay. Cool. I look forward to expanding my library on these. Well, I think, I think it was because of me that your dad became interested in Tibetan Buddhism. How cool! <laughs> because I had learned the puja that Lama Govinda had design. But your dad already possessed the Dorjes and the statues that his dad had gotten right. in China. Oh, I didn't realize the Dorjes came from his dad. Oh, yeah. He had, okay. He That's was, good to know. And, you know it's a hardcore-looking Dorje. I can't find another one that looks as cool. And he got the, the strings around it from the Karmapa. Well, yeah. Before that, though, he knew I was... I explained to him about the puja. And we agreed that what I was doing in Tibetan Buddhism was... The Vajrayana practice was the equivalent 
of what he is doing in the Western mm. esoteric tradition with the Tree of Life. But by the time I knew him, he was totally into the Tibetan. <laughs> he was all about the Tibetan. Yeah, he got involved. He taught me in the tarot tr- and the Tree of Life, too, but, but he was mostly focused on the Tibetan. Well, the Chogon Trungpa was one of my teachers, and it was Trungpa who invited the Karmapa oh. to come over here right. and do the, the black hat ceremony and do his empowerment. And this was and the stuff. 16th Karmapa, the previous one. Right, the previous, the 16th. And your dad went and saw that, and he got really excited about it. How cool. But I can't say 100% for sure, but I believe my involvement in it definitely influenced him. Wow. Interesting. So and, you're like my grand teacher in uh, his, Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> his, his friend Jack Davison mm-hmm. also got real involved. And Jack Davison started studying under Tarfong Tuku, who did the translation and brought that text of the life and liberation of Yeshi Soba. Mm. And also Tarfong Tuku started a community in Northern California where they have a Tibetan community living there they preserve the practices. It's called Odeon. Hmm. And they, I donated like $500 towards it when they announced it. Hmm. I was living in San Francisco. At the time, that was a big donation for me. But I really wanted to see this tradition transplanted yeah. from, uh, you know, upper India or Nepal or wherever he was over here. And he has got a complete Tibetan version of all the scriptures of that tradition, oh, the, cool. the Tanjur and the Kanjur, and then people are now in the process of, have been in the process of translating it into English. The publisher is called Dharma Publishing, Okay. that did this book on the life and liberation of Jesu Sogo. Okay. I will definitely check that out. They've got a whole line of books. And they're kind of independent from all the other Tibetan Buddhist groups. Interesting. Nice. And I don't know if Tarthong Tuku is still alive or not. Yeah. But he published a book of Lama Govinda and his wife, Ligotami. They did two pilgrimages into Tibet right after World War II in the 1940s, before the Chinese invaded. And they have a photographic record of these old temples they went to. Wow. It's called Tibet in Pictures. Hmm. Dharma Publishing also publishes that. I have a lot of pictures from my uh, father's mm-hmm. father, but I don't have like the context behind them. So I have pictures of old temples and pictures of the insides of temples and pictures of all these different places. And I, I have certain stories that mm-hmm. kind of match up with some of the pictures and then other stories that I don't know if they match up. Like... Um, when he was bringing the petroleum-based lamp oil to replace the whale uh, fat-based lamp oil mm. in the monasteries, and uh, and then he ended up trading watches for um, some of the statues. She's your grandfather. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So the thousand-year-old statue of Vimalamitra that I have, according to the story, my grandpa traded a watch. Um, you know, they had never seen watches, and it was a gold watch. It was a nice watch, but I mean. 
you know, I mean, like given the, a, a thousand-year-old piece of wow, I didn't know that about Chinese antiquity uh, for a watch. It's, yeah. It sounds like he's a bit of a shyster, but I mean... But then I, I used to be very ashamed that who's my grandfather, and my dad told me I was him reincarnated, which made me double ashamed. <laughs> and, uh, but then, then when I started to like think about the fact that he was a young guy thinking he was saving whales, you know, like the Cuyahoga River was on fire, of course, but uh, at least they wouldn't be killing as many whales for the for the lamp oil in the monasteries. Like, like from a different point of view, like in 1919, that might not seem so sinister as being a standard oil executive. I mean, he was, it was Saucony, so it's literally Exxon Mobil. Like nowadays, it's the equivalent of Rex Tillerson. You know, like no. Rex Tillerson. My my, uh, I might cut this part out, but my grandmother's first husband was the Dan C. Reed. That instead of it being in Shanghai, he was in uh, Moscow. So he was the mm. one forging those connections that, between Exxon Mobil and the Russian government. <laughs> so so when I when I saw Rex Tillerson come in, I felt a little bit of a tinge of pride, <laughs> knowing that my family was involved. I made the foundation of that. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I didn't know all that about your family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some fun fun stories. Well, um, he drove the first oil rig up the Yangtze River and got uh, kidnapped and held for ransom. <laughs> so all that smog in Beijing started with my father's father <laughs> taking that first oil rig up the Yangtze River. <laughs> well, the, the monks or whoever they were that traded these valuable statues yeah. for the watch, they were happy with the watch. The, yeah, at the time. So they didn't feel they were being ripped off. Right. They were getting... I just wonder if my grandpa knew he was ripping them off. I think, you know, I mean, anybody who, like, it seems like the whole currency exchange, you know, was established by Dutch, uh, you know, people who, who would go to a place and say, really, that's all you want for this? Great. And then they'd go back home and sell it for an astronomical amount of money using the fact that they risked life and limb and they built the boat or they bought the boat and they had to go get it and it's labor and time and all this other stuff. They marked it way up and now we have part of the world where the currency is worth this much and the rest of the world where it's worth that much because it was intentionally set up that way mm. because the people that had the upper hand wanted to keep the other hand same as the horse owners when Rome was a village before there were any women the the, the ones with the horses felt they had a greater right to the wealth of this new village because they did more to help defend them against the neighbors who mm. were trying to put them down and so hence the class of knights that we know today starting with the people who, who not only owned but knew how to take care of their horses in the ancient village Rome. It's really sad. History is fascinating. Yeah. How do we fix it? It's gotten really crazy with these billionaires just getting richer and it's harder and harder for Well, my, my personal belief is that it's only going to be through a consciousness awakening, a spiritual awakening and that as Desharnam said, there is this no-sphere through which everyone with consciousness is connected. Yeah. And once a certain critical mass of people have evolved into a consciousness of love, mm. and that love is pouring into the no-sphere, it will create a force that will pull up the consciousness of everyone else who's willing into an awakening. Mm. And that would change things literally overnight mm. because the experience people would have would be realizing that we're all part of the same spiritual body on the deeper level. Yeah. So when you meet another person, it's not like you're just meeting someone that's separate from you. Right. But you're meeting a, a part <laughs> yeah. you're meeting a, another part of your deeper spiritual self 
that's in a different physical body than you're in. Yeah. So whatever you do to anyone else, you are doing to yourself, and you will consciously feel and experience that. Yeah. So the idea of ripping someone off or causing them to suffer... Self-destruction. ...would be intunable because you would experience the pain as soon as you did it. Yeah. But that's a long ways off, probably. Yeah, I know. It feels like it's at least several thousand years away. It's what's happening now, but we're not conscious of it. Right. Because we're locked into the separate self-consciousness. Yeah. And locked out of the universal And Yeah, there's been these attempts, like the, the universal church, the Catholic church. You know, get everybody to understand the same symbolism. Get everybody to meet once a mm. week and stay on board. They've tried it. They've tried different things, you know, different models. Now it's like the corporate model, where if we get everybody with the same, same you know, HR department and, and the same uh, rules of hiring, then, then maybe everything will be fine. It's like that quest for the utopia that has to be artificially implemented through rules and through patterns and, you know, uh, rituals and things. Well, all organizations now on earth, whether they're religious, you know, or secular, governmental, whatever they are, they're made up of imperfect human beings who have false selves and true selves. And as long as that's the case, there will be a dark side, a false self side to every institution, every business, every organization. Every church, relationship, individual, family, every individual relationship, everything. Business. We just have to accept that that is where we actually are. Yeah. And ideally, that's not where we want to be. But in order to get where we ideally want to be, we have to honestly see where we realistically are. Yeah. And accept the fact that we have that dark side, the shadow side, yeah. the part of us that is flawed. And then, through spiritual practice, work on that and allow the divine force to transform it by us cooperating with the divine guidance. It's not something that we can do on our own as a separate self. It's it's like trying to pull yourself with your bootstraps. Some rational uh, step by step you know process or something and remember we have to go through the small tree that's in every one of those sephira on the tree of life yeah and it's only when we become a universal consciousness that we're there yeah but I think once we get to the the sphere of mercy or you know chest of mercy that's the sphere of the masters of compassion. That's the highest sphere we can evolve to as an individual consciousness. That's the sphere of the exempt adept. And if you know, I'm sure the exempt adept is called exempt because everything that adept does is motivated by divine love. So it's karma-free activity. Mercy full exempt adept. Yeah. The, the greater adept is the one that is learning the lessons of righteousness and justice and enforcing that because that sphere that's the Mars sphere that's the love and the zeal for righteousness and that's that's the enforcer of it for those of us who are so dull spiritually that we do not respond to love and mercy 
the only thing that we do respond to is pain and suffering. And at some point, the person is going to say, I'm tired of all this pain and suffering. So maybe I better reevaluate my modus operandi. You know, head against this wall over and over. Because I keep coming up with pain and suffering. But once our heart is converted to love, there's no need for that. There's no need for judgment. Then we attain the mercy of love and there's no grudge held against us. Because we're not the being that created that karmic debt anymore. We're transformed into a compassionate, loving soul. That's what we want to be. But it will still be an individual consciousness. And all those souls, those masters of compassion, those are the spiritual guides. But they're at the level where they're just, they're an individual consciousness still. Yeah. But they are many of our teachers and initiators and helpers. At some point that master of compassion will be prepared for the arduous journey across the abyss into the supernal triad to become a universal consciousness. And that's where the yeshis are. (laughs) That's where the the Christ is, the the Buddhists, the bodhisattvas, the highest ones. They are universal consciousness. We cannot even conceive of what that is. We can name it a universal consciousness, but it's beyond our ability to wrap our mind around because our minds are individual consciousness. So our job is to work on our individual consciousness for now. And now can be for a long time until we are exempt adepts. Of course, there's the middle path, straight up the middle pillar. That's the person that seeks divine union and wants to just transcend the creation and when they get together they have that choice you can enter into the limitless light or you can remain and serve the divine plan I remember my mom explaining that um, my dad preferred Vajrayana Buddhism to the older form of Buddhism for the reason that the older form the original form, what some people call the real form, and Vajrayana is not even Buddhism, you know, acknowledging that that, that point of view exists, um, <clears throat> that he didn't like that direct route, that he wanted something with teeth, that, you know, that was what he liked about the tarot, is it had teeth, that it wasn't all just light, there was a death card and a tower card, and with uh, with tantric Buddhism, there's a left-hand path that you, that's always like, you can accidentally go down, or you can go down on purpose, and, and, and blowing open these different channels, as opposed to kind of the post-Puritan, like, uh, you know, repressing them, like walking around, like, I nope, I don't feel that way, no, I would never be, no, you know, like, just go ahead and say, well, what if? You know, and then, ah, oh, then now I can let go of it. You know, like, I don't, I don't have to walk around holding these restrictions to get well, being repressed. So yeah, yeah. Repressing your sexual energy right. and your passions. And that's, a, that's a form of self-denial. So my opinion is that someone that opts for that is going to stay stuck in the personality astral triad. They're yeah. not going to get 
above that. Yeah. We have to accept all of the energies that are within us and integrate them. Yeah. But the path of the mystic is that path, the path of the occultist is the path that takes all of life mm. and goes through the side pillars as well as the middle pillar. Right. And that's that's the path of service. And the path of yeshi. The path of wisdom, because you have to you have to go down those roads to know what those roads are like. You don't get the wisdom unless you pass through all of those different experiences. Yeah. Wisdom comes with experience. Simple as that. So avoiding the experience there's a lot of gurus that came from the east who took the middle path and they attained some degree of enlightenment. Maybe, maybe at the most, in the the sphere of Tippereth beauty, mm. and they came to the West to teach, and they had the charisma, and they had the the love, and the divine consciousness, but they hadn't done the work yet on their lower self, mm. so they succumbed to the temptations of building cities and poisoning people, material things. <laughs> Not to Sensation, pleasure, yeah. you know, the sexual temptations, yeah, yeah. and the power control temptations, and the desire for fame and to be worshipped. And their egos became intoxicated, and they, they made mistakes and they became fallen gurus. They just dropped off like flies because they weren't prepared for what this culture is. They, they had gone into the celibacy of the Himalayas. Right. They hadn't faced those parts of themselves that would be attracted to these things. Yeah. They avoided it. And so they and succumbed to those temptations. They began to, yeah, gosh. It's a dangerous thing, yeah. whether you're from the East or the West, yeah. to succumb to these temptations. That's why I think the Tree of Life is so unnecessary to really point out as a map what the journey really is. You don't just attain non-dual consciousness on the level of Malkuth and you're done. If it was was that easy, it would be wonderful. But that's not the way it really is. So I would say as long as a person is an individual consciousness, I'm repeating this, (laughs) we still have a long ways to go. A long ways to go. And as long as we're incarnated in a human body, we're still going to be human, and we're still going to have human desires. And we need to be honest about that. When we're no longer human, then we'll be above the human temptations. But I don't think any human being is. I don't think Jesus was. When Jesus drank the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was in that cup was all of the suffering of humanity, all of the sin, all of the alienation from God of all humans, past, present, and future. So when he accepted that, he was reduced to being just a human being. He lost his connection, conscious connection to God, though God remained one with him from God's side of the relationship. But from Jesus' side, he was reduced to a human being. And then he went through what he went through. It was the will of the Father, not his human will, because he asked 
if it's possible, let this cup pass. So the cup was being reduced to a human being. So he experienced all of the suffering, betrayal, alienation from God, and pain, existential aloneness that any human being can experience is part of the price that he paid as his sacrificial love. And then the inner resurrection, of course, and he came out in a resurrection body. And to follow him, we have to allegorically go through that same process. That's yeah. the Christian spiritual journey. Yeah. So we have to allow our, our lower self to be crucified so that the inner resurrection of our true self can happen in our soul. And we become identified with Tipperith in us. But we do it many times as we work up from Malkuth through that tree into Yesid into Hod, into Netzah. And each one of those gives us a partial kind of sense of adepthood because we experience the mystery of Tipperith in the first degree and the different degrees, but it's only experienced in its fullness when our entire soul moves from the lower triad personality astral triad into the middle triad, the spiritual moral triad, and every bit of us is part of Tipperth beauty. And we don't have to incarnate anymore unless we choose to. Our need to incarnate for our spiritual growth is over. Right. So if we choose to, it's in order to be of service. But then we have to take upon ourselves the limitations of the human condition just as Jesus had. Right, right. It makes he, me think of that. How as the, a human being. The devil path that connects Tiferet with Hod. The, uh, in the original book T, they're not bound to the chain, they're holding the chain. Mm. And I think of Ayin, the letter that corresponds with that path, being the I, mm. that, and the title, the Lord of the Gates of Matter. So you, and you pass through mm. the gates of matter by picking up that chain and being under the rulership of the devil in order to be in the personality triad. And as long as you hold on to that chain, that's where you are. And the way out of that chain is to close the eyes, to no longer be fixated on this world of matter, and yes. to let go of the chain. And then you're in the, the higher realms. And we can do that here through meditation. And it helps to do yoga first so you're not focused on your body pains. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. 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 To, to become aligned. Recently, because I, I've been invited to give a uh, series of talks at a special centering prayer retreat, a five-day retreat they're going to have in St. Louis mm -hmm. at the Marist Center on uh, the tree of life and inner transformation, you know, with centering prayer. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be giving a series of six talks introducing people to the Christianized you know, version of the tree of life in the context of centering prayer. I'm, that's at the end of June. If 20 people sign up for the retreat, it's going to happen. <laughs> so, well, Athanasius Kircher I'm, was a Jesuit priest, so it doesn't take. It doesn't he's the one who drew it? So I mean, it doesn't you don't have to Christianize it? <laughs> well, to present it in you know in this right in its original context Christian for people context. that are people who are already practitioners of centering prayer, mm. who are Catholic or other Protestants, right? It's going to be new to them. They've yeah. never 
heard of much of the tree alive. Right, see, right. So it's going to be very introductory. Yeah. But in preparing myself for it, I just recently reread Dion Fortune's book, The Mystical Kabbalah. Mm. And it made me think about your dad. Mm. Because that was one of the books he told me to read when I was first curious about it as a college student. Yeah, how cool. And the book was way over my head. But I just noticed some really good insights in that book. She doesn't discuss the, the 32 paths, or the, the tarot arcanum. She just focuses on the 10 spheres. Oh, interesting, okay. And on the clippeth. Right. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. One of the things she said in there that I thought was very interesting was about the relationship between uh, Chesed, who she also calls Gadula, right? Between Chesed and Gabura, mm-hmm. severity, mercy and severity. How oh, these two things have to balance each other out in the soul, in the individual soul, and in the world. And her idea of evil is that good and evil actually is that they're not things in themselves or principles but they are conditions and this is to me a new way mm-hmm. of looking at these yeah this two is all basic golden dawn it's because a, i think i think of good and evil as two two cosmic principles as an aside on that on the luria tree you know how there's the the traditional jewish kind of the more jewish tree of life and then there's the hermetic tree of life the kircher jesuit one um, there's the, the more Jewish-based one. Um, the sphere Gibura is called the sphere of evil, and the sphere of Hesed is called the sphere of good. So, so um, it's specifically a Hermetic and Christian concept to say mm-hmm. that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's New Testament, not Old Testament. And um, it also contradicts other bits of scripture but um, in the Golden Dawn they say Lord of the Light and the Darkness so it's the superior to both Keter uh, in its king scale is pure brilliance not white brilliance so it's uh, beyond white and black and uh, the mas- of masculine and feminine exactly and Gibura is is taught as will and uh, and that Martian force which of course in a, in a kosher Kabbalah they'd say wait Mars did you just randomly blurt out a Roman god Where you, what are you talking about you know and you say no 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 I mean Madim <laughs> the, the Hebrew word for the but um, but yeah the, so there's those subtle differences where uh, what you're saying makes more sense from a Christian Kabbalah and Hermetic Kabbalah standpoint, but in a Jewish Kabbalah standpoint, the, the definition of evil might actually be more like well, your, she, your, your previous yeah, She uh, deals with that, the misunderstanding of labeling Gaborah as only evil is a complete misunderstanding. Perhaps, she's saying it's, or just a different school. <laughs> yeah. Well, what she's saying is that what we would call evil is an imbalance of right. energies. yeah. And, that, and, if, and we would say that the imbalance can exist in mercy also. So unbalanced mercy is weakness and lack of will. Unbalanced severity is cruelty and oppression. But you bring them together and they temper each other and the whole tree of life is interconnected. Then nothing is evil. Then everything is good because everything has its place. Like a body, a heart by itself isn't evil. An eye by itself isn't evil. I mean, you know, like it's all part of the body and, and yes. the body needs all of it. Well, yeah, that's that's what I got from, from her book. Yeah. And she's saying like if... If uh, mercy or chesed goes to extremes, it becomes evil. 
Right. It becomes idiot compassion. Yeah, over permissiveness. It becomes it becomes allowing destructiveness yeah. to occur. It yeah. becomes over permissiveness. And of course, if Kabura goes to an extreme, it becomes destructive, oppression. oppressive, and persecuting. Yeah. So the two need to pull against each other to keep each other and from going the to the extreme. The, the woman and the lion. Right, the yeah. strength. And if you look at the the situation in our country right now, mm. the polarization that's existing politically, you know, right. between kind of mirrors that, that are liberals and conservatives, it mirrors it. Yeah. And instead of one labeling themselves as good and the other as evil, they both they need to rep- recognize that each of them is necessary and each of them has both good and evil potentials within them and to respect each other. Yeah. Without that, we'll never get peace yeah. or evolve forward. Ken Wilber, I mentioned him to you before, he wrote a very interesting article, and you can get it online, I think. It's, it's about 80 pages long, but it's called Trump in a Post truth world is the title of the article and basically what he says in there is that the reason that we got the president we got was because the postmodernists or the, the more progressive people they failed to lead they failed to really make a stand they went too far into saying, well, everything is relative. All truths are equal. Everybody has their truth and they're all equal. Right. Because they're hung up on taking the idea of equality to an, an extreme, extreme and they don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. So they say no matter what anyone's position is, it's just as valid as anyone else's is. Right. So they refuse to take any kind of a stand. But everyone's a special snowflake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about what it is. Yeah. So that's what clicked to me when I was reading Fortune's book was that's the Chesed thing going to too much of an extreme. Mm. They, Everything is made the same because they eschew any type of a hierarchical ranking because they don't want to offend They perceive anybody. it as the old father-knows-best model nothing of is 1950s. Better, nothing uh, is better than anything else. We're all equal. Right. And, you know, they they love peace, which, well, who isn't Except for whichever it? red state they came from when they were 20. Yeah. So, they label the other people, of course, as evil, and they're good because they're so idealistic. Right. They, I, they're the real Christians who heard the real message of Christ, and their parents are the bad Christians who listen to the to the preacher at the evangelical church back home. So, what, what Wilbur is saying in this article is that because the force of evolution couldn't find a place to work in from, mind, I mean, <laughs> it couldn't find a place to move forward from because the postmodern people didn't take any kind of a stand. Yeah. They were too wishy-washy. Well, they wanted to play it safe and have someone who was, who was in the system rather than the person who was actually being the voice for that movement. But anyway. <laughs> well, what the force had to do was it had to regress yeah. and go back through a warrior stage of consciousness mm. and a traditional stage and a modern stage and that is what Trump embodies right. and that's that's why we have it so from there the force can 
make another try. Right. In other words, regressing back to the previous level, but then trying to move forward. Yeah, organizing. And then there will again. be another reorganization of what postmodernism was supposed to deliver. Right. Positive postmodernism, that is. Negative postmodernism wants to deconstruct everything. Right. It, just, it tears down There's the There's a individual. metamodernism now. If you, are you, are you, have you gotten into that one yet? No. I, I'll send you some links. But, yeah. but the negative postmodernism says that the individual doesn't have any spiritual value. Mm. It's all meaningless. Right. It's very pessimistic. The positive postmodernism is... Is positive, but it needs it needs more existentialism. It's it's one. I was just talking to someone about how it seems that the argument on the left, like we argue with ourselves, mm. half of us think all religion is bullshit, and the other half says all religions are equally valid. And then in the in the other states, it's well, no, surely Christianity There's is the only correct one. Way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you regress back to the traditional, right. or the warriors or the tribal, the tribal stage, yeah. There's only one true thing and. Everything else is a lie. Yeah. You know, whatever your choice is, yeah. doesn't matter. But but yeah, we're we're fighting amongst ourselves over here in the left about how we should be the left. I mean, because it's new, because it's a new kind of way of life. That no, you know, I mean, we're embracing all these extremes that have you know have been put upon, and oddly grouping together, you know, abortion rights with with being gay publicly. I mean, it, it, things that don't seem intuitively to be related, but um, they all just end up in this one blue thing because because they're all equally oppressed by the big red thing. I, 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 I point out that uh, people sometimes see my Golden Dawn tools, and they're like, well, these seem like w Wiccan tools. How come they have Hebrew written on them? And it's like, because the Catholic Church was oppressing witches and Jews, so they had to look out for each other. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but you know, it's, a, it's a fun story. But yeah, it's that same idea. They get lumped into the same category. Well, I was just really struck by the obvious fact that the problems that we're having now, they've always been the same, really, and it's right there on the tree of life, yeah. particularly in that pair of opposites, you know, of mercy and severity. Yeah. It's, it's really nothing new. It's in a different, it's like the props on the stage are different, are different but the drama is no different at all. And if, if, it's, if it's souls that are moving up in their evolution and learning these lessons, like if that's the grounded reality that one is coming from, then all of this just basically looks like kindergarten. It looks like, you know, you, there's a generation coming in, they were dogs in their previous life, and then there's a generation on their way out, this is their last life, and, you know, they, that's the graduating class, those are the freshmen, you know, like, and, and uh, but I mean, for well, me, in between I, those, there's a lot. There's a lot, yeah. And, and the, for me, I mean, I, I grew up with that paradigm, thanks to you, apparently. Um, but I, uh, I doubt it. I mean, when it, when it, you know, I don't. I'm not fully grounded in it. I, I, I want to be. I want to think that way because it seems like. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famous scientist, says, "Be, be, be skeptical of." philosophies that make you feel better, that people tend to want to believe the things that will make them feel better. The feel-good spirituality, yeah. that was one of the things Wilbur criticizes. He says, or has said that there's two kinds of spirituality. There's a transformative spirituality, which involves work and facing the reality of your soul, right. my term, but, and then there's the feel-good spirituality, 
which pampers the ego. Right. And his criticism of a lot of the postmodern New Age is that it's too much feel good right. and not enough transformation. But if you want to evolve, you have to have a transformation practice, not just a feel good practice on that, that keeps subject, you stuck though, there. On that subject, I think that if you put um, certain spiritual paradigms and practices, maybe even certain New Age ones or, or certain other ones, on one hand, and then on the other hand, you have, you know, the path of the atheist, who isn't just someone who is wanting to talk badly about the religion they were brought up in, but someone who really feels that they are nothing more or less than the cosmic dust swirling in a particular way at the present time. And that I feel that is a hardcore spiritual path. That's a modern stage. That's yeah. it, but it's Science. a hardcore spiritual Scientific path. Scientific to look materialism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can put a label on it and say <clears throat> it's different from spirituality, but the point that I'm making is the opposite of that, which is that if somebody says, "I have an angel," I used to have an imaginary friend. Now I have an angel, and the angel tells me everything's going to be okay, and I feel okay. On one hand. And then on the other hand, you have someone staring into the abyss at the destruction of their own individual ego. Mm-hmm. And maybe they don't see what's on the other side of that abyss. Maybe they don't see that maybe there's a universal consciousness on the other side. But the person who is playing around in the astral looking for Jesus and trying to find out which person dressed as Jesus is the real Jesus, the atheist is miles ahead. I agree. They're, if they're being honest... yeah. They're, they're passing through a dark night. Yeah. The existential crisis, the existential And they'll anguish. get there first. I mean, and you maybe. That's part of the transformative journey. Yeah. You know, like John of the Cross has this classic thing called the dark night of the soul. Right. Night of sense and night of spirit. And that's part of the dues we have to pay. And that's the thing that someone that wants a feel-good spirituality is scared shitless to face yeah, up to. Yeah, But that's... That's part of the key to opening the door. Yeah, and it's one of the... Like Dying to yourself. From a perspective or from a tree of life perspective, the death path is there. That's one of the things you got to confront about the universe slash yourself. And, I mean, slash, not slash yourself, but I mean the, the, the grammatical uh, punctuation. I need to go to the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, sure. Could you pause yeah. for a moment? And... Something that I, I found, like I've been on a, a tour since... Uh, 17th of February, mm-hmm. and I've met with with uh, some communities, you know, in different in different cities, like in Washington State and in Colorado and Texas and so forth. And what I was sad to discover in some of these communities is there are a number of people who they're more of you know the postmodern or liberal frame of reference. They have become so disturbed and anxious and worried about the polarization in the country and they feel so strongly anti uh, you know the results of the election and so forth that they're losing their spiritual center they're losing their peace they're they're being infected by the negativity yeah. of the polarization and uh, it's spiritually, you know, it's 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 like uh, handicapping them quite a bit. Yeah. And so I've, you know, I've said to them that 
it's important that we keep our inner peace intact. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there was a story I'll share with you. It's a good lesson that actually came from the teacher from India, Swami Amar Jyoti. Mm-hmm. It's a story from, from his life that he shared some years ago. And the principle of it, I think, is kind of cute, kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, when he was 19, he was called, you know, to the spiritual path. And he dropped out of college. He was from a pretty well-to-do family in Bombay. Bombay. <laughs> Bombay. Mm-hmm. Bombay, which now I think they, what do they call Bombay? Uh, Dubai? No, not Dubai. Mm-hmm. It has another name now, anyway. And so he renounced the world. Mm. And he was studying in the ashram of a particular guru. And he didn't own one single material possession. I mean, you know, he had his clothes, except he had an alarm clock. And he used the alarm clock to wake up at four every morning so he could start doing his meditation practices. That was the only thing he owned. And one day, he came back, and his alarm clock was gone. Someone had stolen it. And he was really upset because he's thinking, well, how am I going to get up to do my my meditation and my sadhana and my prayer and so forth, you know. And he went to his teacher, his guru, and told him, you know, Master, Master, somebody, somebody stole my alarm clock. And the teacher said to him, well, this person stole your alarm clock, but you, have you also let him steal your peace? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And basically, that's what I see happening to a lot of good, sincere, you know, peace-loving people, yeah. is that they're allowing this polarization to steal their peace. And the alarm clock represents the amount of time that they spend listening to the news, hearing about all this, and having negative reactions to it. And I think that it's appropriate. I mean, there's a few people that... Our time is being stolen and our peace. There's a few people that have been activated. Like like when when that happened, they came awake. And I I felt like I was one of them. Lindsay was one of them. Um, Janie's grandma was one of them. Like people who just are like, okay, it's time for me to step up and... Clearly, the world needs helpers, and I, I'm pretty darn sure, I'm, to whatever degree I can, I'm one of them. And so here I am, I'm awake. And so it kind of had the opposite effect. And I think that when, when people become angry, and they, they, think, they think that they're helping, they think that they're supposed to be angry. I had a yoga teacher. I went the morning after the, uh, the inauguration, and the guy who was teaching the yoga class was, like, judging me for smiling. He was like, surely you couldn't be smiling on a day like this during the yoga class, and he's the teacher. So, so there's an example of someone kind of maybe misunderstanding the message yeah, he a got, little bit. He got his clock stolen. Yeah, exactly. And his piece. And his piece, right. But I was, I had just had a meeting the night before that was profoundly, like, we, we did chakra work and we did Tibetan work, we did Golden Dawn work, and it was three awakened people 
and uh, and it was this profound thing. And I woke up the next morning and went to yoga class because I was inspired, and so I just felt like I was glowing and humming and smiling. So he assumed I was a Trump supporter who was gloating for for the fact that my guy won, you know. And so he wanted he was like, you should talk to me after class, you know, oh. like, like it was weird, you know. But um, yeah. but yeah, it's just the different reaction. I think that anger. Anger's part of it. Maybe it's part of the process of, uh, you know, mourning. Anger, you know, sadness and, and denial and all that. But, but becoming activated, become, like realizing it's time to focus. It's time to focus on spirituality. Well, it can be cathartic, to, it, for sure. And it can be a fuel. It can be a motivating fuel as opposed to just a fuel that burns up and, uh, and, and burns you out. Yeah, well, the, the, the problem is only there if the person loses their spiritual poise, their yeah. peace, and they allow themselves to be taken over by the negative. They give in to the negativity, and they allow that to become their center. Or in a and sense... And it dissipates, it dissipates their, their presence of mind, yeah. their ability to be alive in the present moment, because they're so focused on expressing their anger. And a lot of times it's anger that's inside of us right. that we've been suppressing, and so this is an outlet for it. Yeah. Everybody's but it raging at that horrible our, figure in their lives. Our uh, Gabura just kind of goes, runs amok. Yeah. And it runs out of balance with the severity. I mean, with the just uh, the mercy side. Well, yeah, when one of the talks I gave, a person in the audience stood up and said, how can you, how can you recommend this? And what I did was I gave him a formula of, that was given to me by the teacher of how you can keep your inner peace intact under all circumstances. Mm. And the formula goes like this. There's four different ways people can be when you confront them. And depending on which of these four ways they are, there's an appropriate way to outwardly respond to them that will allow you to keep your peace intact mm. under all conditions Inwardly, you're to love all of these people. You're to feel love towards all these people. But outwardly, you don't express or show that love to all four types. The first type of person is, and the same person could be all four of these at different times. Right. But the first type of person is the person that's happy. You be happy with them that they're happy. The second type of person is the person that's unhappy, that's suffering. You have compassion outwardly for that person and help them if you can. You know, be considerate, kind, come to their assistance, show mercy and compassion outwardly. The third, the third type of person is the person who is being virtuous, who is doing the right thing. This type of person, you affirm them. You give them honor. You give them happiness. You give them positive reinforcement because they're upholding righteousness and virtue. The fourth type of person, of course, is the problematic one. That's the person that's being unvirtuous, who's doing wrong, who's doing evil, who's creating suffering, who's being dishonest, etc. If you want to keep your peace intact, you're to inwardly love them, outwardly to take a neutral, detached attitude toward them and move away from them. Disregard in the yeah. Yoga Sutras. Yeah. Don't answer them in the same coin that they are. Yeah. Don't be negative to a negative person because you'll get sucked into the vortex of the negativity. Yeah. And so when I said that, 
this person who was really fired up, he got up and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, how can you advocate that when all this you know, terrible stuff is happening in our society? We can't just sit by and allow this to happen. And so I said to him, well, you always have a choice. What I've given you is a practical formula to use if you want to keep your peace intact. However, you may choose, and it may be the right thing for you to do, not to just be neutral towards that person. You might want to follow the example of Jesus when he went into the temple and whipped the money changers. He used violence and anger. But inwardly, I believe he was at peace and he had love and compassion for those people, but outwardly, he was expressing total negativity and condemnation. If you can keep your peace intact and do that, then it's safe for you to do this. But if you allow yourself to get caught up in it and taken over by it, then you're losing spiritually. And your action will be less effective than it is if you have compassion in your heart inwardly when you're doing it, whatever you're doing. But you always have a free choice. It's just a question of what is your priority, what do you want. If you don't have at least 80% peace of mind inwardly, you cannot meditate. You cannot commune with your higher self. So the price of losing that peace is too great if you're on the spiritual journey. It ain't worth it. But if you're at a place where inwardly you don't lose your peace and your spiritual poise, that might be what you are supposed to do. Maybe your higher self is directing you to do that. That makes me think of the Lakota um, tribes and the. Oh, that's another good example of it. That they, uh, that people who, you know, did it appropriately were participating in prayerful activity and meditation activity and maintaining their inner peace, even though they were standing up to, you know, an army. They were standing up to these these men in riot gear and stuff. So there's an example of a way where you can an answer to that guy's question and an example you could cite of like. These people didn't lose their peace of mind. Why? Because, you know, like they they were doing what needed to be done. They, you know, in the end, I don't know if, you know, I think it's probably going to go ahead and they're going to go ahead and build it. But yeah, but they maintained but they their spiritual the, grounding and they really made a an impact and people heard them and you know it's going to be in the history books and hopefully it will be part of a a step toward. A better world where we don't have all these oil pipes everywhere. I mean, you know. so that's that's a beautiful example of a higher consciousness being brought to bear into a very negative situation. Yeah, uh, that's that's the example to follow, and that's the type of leadership that is needed yeah. from the postmodern consciousness. It can't. It can't just allow for the destruction to take place. Yeah. And say, well, everything is all equal and it's all the same and therefore it's wrong to take a stand. You know, there comes a point where you have to take a stand. That's yeah. how this world is. Yeah. It's not our choice, it's not the way we would choose it, but that's what the conditions are. There's a lot of uh, spiritual things going on in that confrontation from yeah. the planes. Obviously. Yeah, a lot. 
Well, should we wrap this up for now? Sure. We're sure. just over the two. So thank you so much. This is, um, um, thank you for listening to this. This has been Kess Fry, and this is uh, Easter Sunday, April 16th, 2017. I'm Edward Reeb. Yes. And, uh, and we're at the coffee table in Eagle Rock, uh, <laughs> and, and I have my microphone out, and people are looking at us funny. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. So thank you very much. All right. Pleasure. Thank you, Kess Fry, for being our guest on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast tonight. Thank you to Susumu Ueda and his father and the other monks at Jofuku Inn Temple for the music you're listening to right now. Thank you to Camille and Kennerly for the harp intro and outro to the interview itself. Thank you to Israeli Sesame Street and to John Goldman for the music used in the Aleph Bet Vet Gimel Dalad Hay segment. And most importantly, thank you to you, the esoteric nerd listening to this podcast. I will close with the words of Padma Sambhava, as recorded by Yeshitsogil. I am a yogi, beyond word, thought, and description, who journeys on the plane of the view free from extremes. When I journey on the plane of this view, I journey while regarding appearance and existence as Dharmakaya. I am a yogi of luminous appearance and emptiness who journeys on the plane of the meditation of empty bliss. When I journey on the plane of this meditation, I journey beyond meditation and post-meditation. I am a yogi of self-liberated perception, who journeys on the plane of spontaneous conduct. When I journey on the plane of this conduct, I journey in equal taste, without accepting or rejecting. I am a yogi of self-existing non-fabrication, who journeys on the plane of spontaneously accomplished fruition. When I journey on the plane of this fruition, I journey free from hope and fear. I am a yogi, beyond word, thought, and description, who journeys over the pass of the view free from extremes. When I journey over the pass of this view, I journey beyond meditation throughout day and night. I am a yogi of luminous appearance and emptiness, who journeys over the pass of meditation of empty bliss. When I journey over the pass of this meditation, I journey free from dullness and agitation. I am a yogi of self-liberated perception who journeys over the pass of spontaneous conduct. 
When I journey over the pass of this conduct, I journey while sowing the seeds of omniscience. I am a yogi of self-existing non-fabrication who journeys over the pass of spontaneously accomplished fruition. When I journey over the pass of this fruition, I am the Buddha of perfected realization. I am a yogi beyond word, thought, and description who journeys down the slope of the view free from extremes. When I journey down the slope of this view, I dwell in the state of non-arising dharmata. I am a yogi of luminous appearance and emptiness, who journeys down the slope of the meditation of empty bliss. When I journey down the slope of this meditation, I dwell in the state of undistracted non-meditation. I am a yogi of self-liberated perception who journeys down the slope of spontaneous conduct. When I journey down the slope of this conduct, I act according to the words of the Sugatas. I am a yogi of self-existing non-fabrication who journeys down the slope of spontaneously accomplished fruition. When I journey down the slope of this fruition, I am the Buddha whose stream of being is purified. I am a yogi beyond word, thought, and description, who journeys to the place of the view free from extremes. When I journey to the place of this view, samsara and nirvana are of the same nature. I am a yogi of luminous appearance and emptiness, who journeys to the place of the meditation of emptiness bliss. When I take the journey to the place of this meditation, the nature of thought is wisdom. I am a yogi of self-liberated perception who journeys to the place of spontaneous conduct. When I journey to the place of this conduct, appearance and existence have the nature of a mandala. I am a yogi of self-existing non-fabrication who journeys to the place of spontaneously accomplished fruition. When I journey to the place of this fruition, everything is the nature of Buddhahood. Once you realize the intent of this song, samsara is nothing to be rejected and nirvana is nothing to be accomplished. Special thanks to Dharma Sound. That was a track of them playing in the background during the recital. You can find them at dharmasoundyoga.com. To 
north and to the south, to the east and to the west, to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below. We send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings 